0: We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16, and we shall read part of the chapter from verse 12. Revelation 16 from verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, And the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings, of the earth and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon, And the seventh angel poured out his vine into the air. And there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices, and thunders, and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake, and so great the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath and every island fled away and the mountains were not found and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven every stone about the weight of a talent and men blasphemed God because of the plague of hell for the plague thereof was exceeding great and may the Lord again add his own blessing to this reading of his word we return to this chapter 16 where we follow through the angels directed from the throne of God to pour from heaven, on behalf of God to pour from heaven, judgments upon this earth, upon the human race, upon men and women, just like you and me, physical, physical, and living in this world just as you and I do. And what takes place has a tremendous effect upon them and upon society in general. Now, if you were to read this chapter of Revelation, just imagine you hadn't read any of the Bible before. You didn't know very much about the Bible. You didn't know very much about prophecies from Daniel or Isaiah or Jeremiah. But somehow or other, this chapter and its contents fall into your hands and you begin to read it. What would you be thinking? Would you be thinking, well, this is just a feeble, this is impossible, this couldn't happen, you would understand that the content of this chapter brings before us events that are truly terrible, events that men are going to experience and are going to be confronted with whatever else men might say trying to fit this chapter into their particular scheme of interpretation, it is as clear as clear as crystal. This chapter is depicting the reality of divine wrath. There's no escaping from it. God is here executing his wrath. As we noted from the sounding of the trumpets, God has issued warnings. He's given men warnings of their need to repent and of how he will deal with them if they don't repent. But we discover what's in the heart of man without the regenerating grace and power of God, the more they were afflicted, the more they blasphemed. Now, returning then to this chapter 16, we've already noted the angel pouring out a vial of wrath upon the earth. An angel pouring out a vial of wrath upon the sea, upon the rivers, and the fountains, and so on. When we go down to chapter 2, verse 17, we read, And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the earth. And there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. You remember what the Savior declared from the cross. It is finished. It is finished. I have completed the work that the Father gave me to do. It is at an end. I have secured redemption For my people, I have made a full and sufficient atonement for their sin. There's nothing to be added to it. Men cannot make any contribution. They can add nothing to what I have done. Here from the throne of God and the Lamb comes this voice. Saying it is done or it is finished. Nothing now can be added to this. I have displayed my wrath and I have here poured out my wrath as it is pleasing to me and as men in their blasphemy and Refusal to repent deserve. So here we have real wrath from God himself. Now, you and I know the world you and I live in. Even the children know. That the three elements that we depend upon for life itself is earth, sea, and air. And here are the judgments of God upon that which man actually depends upon. Without the earth, he dies. Without food. Without the sea, he cannot survive. It's very interesting, even at the present time. Although the politicians hide so many things, international politicians hide so many facts from the ordinary person, but it's a well-known fact, a great concern uh, that the earth in many parts is faced with a water crisis, running out of water. In fact, Israel, the land of Israel, is basically without water at all at present. All the resources have basically dried up so that they are pumping massive amounts of water from the Mediterranean Sea and removing the salt, and that's their lifeline, and they're becoming so good at it that they're actually exporting water. Someone made the comment... It won't be long until you'll see water made in Israel. And the world is facing a real crisis. The land is suffering great areas of what once was the bread baskets of the world. Presently, they are suffering suffering. Years and years of drought. The air is polluted and everyone now is talking a few years ago they were debating it. Now they seem to be acknowledging we are, we have a real problem with global warming. And the earth and the sea and the air are all presently affected. And as I said to one of our neighbors recently, a man with all his intelligence can't do a thing about it. He may try to solve this problem and solve that problem, but there is a God in heaven who's controlling everything, and it is all under his control to make you of, even to punish men for their sin and their blasphemy. Now, someone said to me, what do you think the uh, blood uh, mentioned when the second angel pours out his vial upon the sea? Verse 3, and it became as the blood of a dead man. Now, anyone in the medical profession, I'm sure, will know The blood of a dead man is quite different to the blood of a living man. And the blood of a dead man congeals. The oxygen is drawn out of it. And here we see the sea. is as the blood of a dead man and nothing can live in it. The oxygen is drawn out of it so that we are told... Everything, every living soul died in the sea. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters. You go back to Exodus, to the plagues in Egypt, when the river Nile was turned into blood, as it were. Then the Egyptians went digging all around to see if they could get fresh water. But these judgments are even more severe. These plagues are even greater plagues. But we must understand this. The word that is used Dan, it has different uh, meanings when it comes to our authorized version. It is translated in several Ways, blood, bloodthirsty, bloody, and so on. It is these different uh, meanings or expressions. But it does also mean uh, the blood in the sense of the juice of the grape. And again and again you will find references to the blood of the grape, or the blood of the vine. It is that which is drinkable, that which is consumable, and here we see the rivers in judgment are turned into that which cannot be drank at all. Now, we are to understand that because of the variety of ways of translating the original word, that also there is a typical sense, a symbolic sense in which the word is used. You don't have to go any further than the Savior's own sacrament. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. Now you and I know perfectly well, contrary to Rome's teaching, that the wine remains wine. The cup is the cup and it is wine. It is not changed one iota. It is wine. And yet the Savior says it is the New Testament in my blood or my, the blood of the New Testament. There's a symbolic uh, meaning to it. And here we have these symbols of fearful judgments from God. Now that does not mean there isn't a material element to it because there certainly is. When we look at verse nine man being scorched uh, with uh, the sun What do we read when we go back to the chapter read in Isaiah chapter 13 where Babylon, ancient Babylon is being judged? We read there, verse 13 of Isaiah 13, Therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth, shall remove out of her place. Now, men are foolish enough to imagine that couldn't really happen. Our little planet is secured where it is. The sun is secured where God put it. Likewise, the moon and Saturn and all the other planets, they're just exactly where God put them. Well, the God who put them there can remove them out of the place just as swiftly, just by a word. I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. Now, whether it actually means movement of the planets or not. One thing is very, very clear. There is an unnatural disturbance. Things are not normal. Things don't continue in the normal way. There are changes taking place because of God's wrath. And you cannot read this 16th chapter of Revelation and not be aware This whole world is changing. This whole earth is being altered. The sun is scorching men. The sea is polluted. The earth is polluted, and so on. And then we come to uh, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. Now, you have cities that are symbolic. Likewise, and yet while they're symbolic, there was a reality, for example, Babylon. There was historical Babylon. There's typical Babylon. There's mystery Babylon here. The real Babylon was a type as we've seen in Isaiah 13. Likewise, the great river Euphrates has a symbolic as well as a real uh, meaning. The river Euphrates was known historically to be a great barrier, as it were, between north and north. And east or west and east, it was considered to be one of the great barriers protecting uh, the Israelites or the children of Israel, the land of Israel, from the great hordes of their enemies. And even in more recent times, it has been that way. But here, what does God do? He says, Sir John writes, There was a vial of wrath poured upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up. Why is it dried up? That the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. It is a preparatory work by God. Preparing the nations, preparing the kings of the east, removing this barrier, as it were, so that kings will come together, they will congregate together. What for? Why are they all coming together? We read... That in verse uh, 14, they gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. What a battle that's going to be. What a battle it presently is, but what a battle it is going to increase to be. To gather them, the river Euphrates has dried up. Now, whether that's literal or not doesn't really matter at the present time. What God is saying is this, he's removing any obstacle, any barrier in the way that the kings of the east and the kings of the west, the powers of the east, the powers of the west will all come together together. For the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Now you'll get books written and films made all about Armageddon. And the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And people are prepared to in their imaginations imagine what the end of the world might be like. But where do the ideas come from anyway? They come straight from the word of God. But who really does take God seriously? Who is presently taking God, who is here revealing to us his wrath, Who is taking it seriously? What kings of the earth are taking it seriously? What parliamentarians, what governments are taking it seriously? They are now concluding that they are incapable of changing the global warming as they talk about it. They're not going to be able to really alter it and reduce it at all, no matter what they try. You can just imagine how they're going to withdraw all the planes out of the sky and stop polluting the air. You can imagine how they're going to withdraw all the polluting influences in the sea, how they're going to change all the ways of farming that are polluting the earth. Of course, big business controls All these things. But here is John and he's looking at the world and he is given a vision of God's attitude to it. What's going on in it? And because he is left out of it, he's given men time to repent. He's called them to repent. They refuse. They go on in their own way. Now what happens? God is removing the obstacles out of the way to bring together these godless powers, to bring together this mighty force of opposition to God and to his church. You go over to the chapter 19 and you have another depiction of this same great battle In Revelation 19, verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war. Who are they making war with? They're not making war with each other. They've all come in agreement together. To make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Who is sitting in the horse? Go back up the chapter and you read verse 11. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Who is this that's making war? It is the meek and lowly Jesus Christ who's enthroned as the Lamb in the midst of the throne. Verse 12, His eyes were as a flame of fire and on His head were many crowns and He had a name written that no man knew but He Himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. You see what the war's about? You see why they're coming together to make war against him that sat on the horse, the white horse, It's against Christ, the Word made flesh, whose name is the Word of God. They're making war with Christ and His Word. This is a war against God's law, God's commandments, God's revelation. Now, You'll see that they're gathered, going back to chapter 16, for the battle of that great day of God. It's God's great day. When he shall be vindicated. When he shall put down his enemies. When he shall bring to an end the blasphemous, wicked, immoral conduct of men opposed to the word of God. Now, how come that the kings of the earth all combine against Christ and against his word? Well, look what happens. We read verse 13... I saw three unclean spirits. Three unclean spirits. Again, we've another trinity here. Three unclean, filthy, vile spirits like frogs. And of course, the frog was one of the unclean creatures and the list in Leviticus and so on. Three unclean spirits... Of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth. Now, do you imagine you'd see them going? Do you imagine that somehow or other you're able to pinpoint these three evil spirits of devils? Would you be able To identify them and observe here, he's setting off on his journey into the kingdoms of the earth to influence the kings and the rulers of the earth. This is an invisible work, spirits of devils, working miracles. Satanic power is very real power. And when we read of the miracles of the Savior, the word in the original can be translated miracles or it can be translated signs because a miracle was a sign of the Son of God. It was a confirmation. It pointed to the fact he was divine. Now here are these spirits of devils giving signs, convincing signs that the kings of the earth will believe them, will receive their message, because it seems that there is miraculous confirmation that what they're saying is the truth. It is interesting to see you go back to the Old Testament and the second book of Kings, if you will, and the uh, chapter 22. And way back in Israel's history, Second Kings, chapter twenty-two, and verse nineteen, or First Kings, I should say, not Second Kings. First Kings, chapter twenty-two, and there you have the king of Israel, and uh, uh, he's in a quandary. As to what his duty is or what he should actually do under the circumstances. In verse 19 of this chapter 22, he said, "Eh thou therefore, he said, hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. And all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? Who will persuade him to go up to his own destruction, to go up to the battle to be destroyed? Who will uh, convince him or persuade him? And one said, in this manner, and another said, in that manner. And there came forth a spirit, and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? How are you going to do it? He said, I will go forth, and will be a lying spirit, in the mouth of his prophets. What did the Lord on the throne then say? He said, thou shalt persuade him and prevail also. Go forth and do so. Now therefore behold the Lord. Put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets, and the Lord has spoken evil concerning thee. When we come to Revelation 16, what do we have? Not just one lying spirit. We have three lying spirits. And where do they go? Do they just wander around aimlessly, seeing if there's someone might listen to their message of deceit? They go to the kings of the earth. They go to the rulers, those who have influence over men. And why are they going to them? To deceive them. Now, in the book of the Revelation, you've got many references when you see John's visions. It was like unto. It was like unto this. It was like unto that. Here in verse 14 They are, no question about it, they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world. What an influence. They have an influence upon the whole world. They lie to the whole world. They lie to kings. They lie to princes. They lie to governments. They lie to presidents. They lie to prime ministers. They lie and they deceive. What for? Well, look at the context. To gather them to the battle. The great day of God Almighty, yes, if they reason rationally, wouldn't they know the last thing we want to do is engage God in a battle? But they're deceived, and they mount this attack, the great battle against God and his word, and against his truth. He gathereth them to a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon, or Hermidon. It is the Mount of Megiddon. Now, you will find, if you go to the Old Testament, many battles were fought in this very place. You go to, for example, Judges chapter 5. You will see there, uh, there's a previous battle referred to in Joshua, but in Judges chapter 5, you find there the difficulties that the Israelites were having at this particular time. The forces of their enemies have combined against them. And Barak could be quite discouraged because some of the tribes of Israel didn't come to assist him. But we read, the kings came, verse 19 of Judges 5, and fought then the kings of Canaan and Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no gain of money, they fought from heaven. The stars in their courses fought against Caesar. God, who throughout history has used his own powers in the wind, the rain, the storm, the snow, and so on. He is called the very heavens at times to engage on his behalf against his enemies as he did in Israel of old. God is not short of means to deal with men. And you see this in this chapter 16. You have other references to Megiddo, the great battles and the lamentations in uh, the valley of Megiddo uh, when Godly Josiah was slain there, Jeremiah, and all the people mourned for him when he was slain in that place. And this uh, Armageddon, people will try to work out, where's Armageddon? When Remember, as a boy, it used to be suggested it was somewhere in Russia. Then others know it. it's somewhere near Israel, or it's just outside Jerusalem, and it's this and it's that. God isn't confined to any spot on the earth today. He does not dwell in the tabernacle. He does not dwell in the holy of holies in the temple. God is omnipresent. And the nations are combining together wherever they are to war against Christ and against his word. It's as simple as that. Now you look what's happen, happening throughout the nations today, in our society. When in the history of man, think of it. When in the history of mankind has society worldwide ever been so secularized? You know, even at the time of the Reformation, our world was a very religious world. Yes, in Europe, Rome dominated, Rome ruled, the papacy was in control, right across Europe, we know. But if you were to go into any other part of the world, you went to China, or you went to... Uh, anywhere else in the world, outside Europe, yes, you would meet with pagan people and heathen people, but they had their gods, they had their worship, they had their religion. Missionaries, when they went to foreign lands with the gospel, did they meet with people who didn't have any form of worship, didn't have any form of religion at all, Didn't have any objects that they ever worshipped at all. The fact is, the world has been a religious world. Men have been religious creatures. But nowadays, we talk of a secular society. When I was a a child, Ireland was referred to as the jewel in the papal crowd, I was referred to that because more missionaries, more priests, more monks, more nuns poured out of Ireland than any other country in the world. Poured out of Ireland all across the globe carrying the teachings and the dogmas of Rome. But As the scripture says, there comes a time when those who were devoted to the whore turn against her and hate her. And Ireland today is a most secular society, boasting of being secular. Northern Ireland, where I came from, Ulster, was considered, often referred to, as the last bastion of thoroughgoing Protestantism in Europe. What is it today? Turning more and more into a secular society. Look at Australia. Look at America. Everywhere you go, secularized society. What's happening? It's as though the river Euphrates is being dried up, and the obstacles in the way, keeping east and west apart, that's being removed. And you can see what's happening. I understand statistics seem to demonstrate that at present, a third of Roman Catholics, a third, of Roman Catholics, due to what's been happening uh, with all the corruption of priests and bishops and so on, a third of Roman Catholics have lost their faith in the church. Now, when they lose their faith in the church, that means the end of church. They don't turn to Protestantism, that's the end of it. It is also something that I fear people don't even understand. It is very few, it seems to me, take have any regard to the fact. The great religions, the three religions that are referred to. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Judaism... Christianity are becoming more and more secularized, but they are coming more and more together. It's around 44% of all claimed Jews actually live in Israel, the land of Israel. Almost as many live in America, something like 30, 39 over 39% of uh, the world's Jews, so-called, live in America. So there are very few Jews outside of America and Israel. The fascinating thing is this. 44% of Jews who call themselves Jews claim we are secular. We are not religious. We are Zionists. Very few people seem to distinguish between Judaism and Zionism. And they are two very different things. Only 11% of the world's Jews, as they call themselves, wherever they are, only 11% of them are actually religious. And among them, around 8% are Orthodox. That little percentage are those who are still looking for the Messiah. Now you think of it. Only 8% are actually looking for their Messiah and waiting for their Messiah. And the sad thing is that they are against, they are totally opposed to Zionism and the claim that the land of Israel actually belongs to them presently. In fact, they are of the conviction that the land has been stolen from the Palestinians and that God is angered because they know the law and the teaching of the Torah. And they believe that God, Jehovah, forbids them to steal And forbids them, therefore, to take the land by sword. They go back to Cyrus. They go back to their deliverance. And they believe God even initially gave them the land, as uh, the prophet said, and God said in the Psalms, you didn't take it by your sword, I gave it to you. And when they were taken off into captivity into Babylon, Cyrus was raised up. They didn't go back and conquer the land. God gave it to them. And they are convinced that that is how it is. The Messiah will come and he will give them their inheritance. He will not expect them to win it by their own sword or by their own modern weapons. and They believe that the present situation is this, that God is keeping back the Messiah. He's, he's, he's not coming because of the sins. They believe that at 70 AD, God in his wrath scattered them all over the world, what was left of them. Now, they don't necessarily believe that that happened because they crucified their Messiah. But they do believe, for some reason, God was angered and God was grieved and he scattered us. But they do believe he will gather us again. But it will be under the Messiah. And because he will rule, he will give us our inheritance. That's what they are convinced of. But the fact is, where we began, secularism has taken over the world as the remedy to man's problems. Get rid of the word of God. We won't have any more sin, will we? You don't have sin if you don't have the word of God. You can basically do anything you want. It pleases you, do it. How can it be a sin? So, the word of God is in the way. And so they battle against the word of God. It's very interesting, the developments in our world, even at the present time. As I said, there's never been a generation so secularized as this generation. But even world events... That are happening are causing concern. The Pope has now a seat in Jerusalem. He can go any time. He's full access to Jerusalem any time. The Americans last year, 2017, or I should say, or last year it was, I think. They have established for the first time ever a military base in Israel. And so they will have a continual presence in Israel. And they will concentrate, the personnel will concentrate on nuclear weaponry and nuclear Warfare. Now why is all this happening? God is gathering secularists together throughout the world. Now it will not happen overnight. That's clear. The plagues that are here referred to, the pouring out of the vials, doesn't mean they're all poured out at once. And it doesn't mean that they're poured out at different intervals. The fact is, these are judgments that affect men so terribly that they blaspheme. It's interesting to see where the first mention of blasphemy is in this very book. Revelation chapter 2, before even we progress from out of the seven churches in Asia. It's fascinating to me the ideas, you look at history and you see how many different sects and cults have been raised up, all supposedly in fulfillment of the book of the Revelation, and are hoping to establish, for example, the New Jerusalem you go back to the 16th century to Germany to the city of Munster and there you have the uh, first of the Anabaptists taking up the sword establishing Munster the city in, in Germany as the new Jerusalem. Many of the pilgrims from Europe we went away to America to escape persecution they thought that in America they would establish the new Jerusalem because there it is in Revelation the new Jerusalem so different from the old Jerusalem but you see the new Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven it is not something established by men And here, in this uh, book of the Revelation, chapter 2, the church in Samarna has a problem. Verse 9, God says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. It's fascinating to me, as I've said, how many down through history taken the book of the Revelation have tried to apply it in this way and that way and making an excuse for doing this and that and the other. Wherever you get men proclaiming that they're Prophetic, they're engaged in prophetic ministry. There's one place on the earth they never ever leave out. Israel. They'll all have different interpretations, but nevertheless, it's bound to be there. It has to be. You look at the book of the Revelation, and there's no mention of Israel. Jews are mentioned twice in basically the same manner. False Jews professing to be Jews. Three times in the whole book you have reference to the tribes of the children of Israel in a historic setting. The fact is the book of the Revelation is about Christ and his Church, universal, Jew and Gentile together. That's what the book is really all about. But you'll notice the blasphemy was already there way back in John's day. It just gets worse. The blasphemy of denying God and the blasphemy of denying God's word. Now, notice what happens in chapter 16 again. These judgments fall. They are sent by God. These three spirits of devils are moving amongst men and they are engaging their minds to convince them. The one thing you exercise your power for, you're in government, you rule, you've influence, what do you do with the power you possess? You war against the one who rides the white horse. You war against the word of God. You challenge the word of God You undermine the word of God. You deny the word of God. You remove the word of God out of parliament. You remove the word of God out of the schools. You remove the word of God out of the homes. You remove it because it's denouncing sin. It's exposing immorality. And it's calling on men to repent, but they refuse. The word of God becomes the greatest obstacle in human society. And there's a real war against it. Now, they are gathered for this intent, for the great uh, day of God Almighty. Now, when the seventh angel poured out his vial upon the air, there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. It's as though this great work of God has been concluded now, and you see in the next chapter, with the downfall of Babylon. Now, when John is talking about Babylon, we mentioned this before, he cannot possibly be talking about historic Babylon. Because when we read from that chapter earlier in, in Isaiah chapter 13, God himself stated regarding ancient Babylon, the great city of Babylon, the historic great Babylon, what did God say? In verse 19 of uh, chapter 13, perhaps we might go back a little in the chapter because you will see that from verse 6, God is calling a man to howl because of what he's going to do to Babylon. It seems if whatever happens in Babylon affects everywhere else. And we're told, verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Verse 11, I will punish the world. Men would be thinking, how dare God do that? Punish the world. What world are we talking about? It's the very world you and I live in. I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity and I will cause the arrogancy of the proud deceased and so on. I will punish the world. Verse seventeen of this chapter thirteen in Isaiah. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. Now you can look at a map, an ancient map, and see where the River Euphrates ran, and how it divided Babylon and and the Medes, and so on, the great empires of the day. Verse 19. Babylon, the glory of kingdoms. Not just the glory of the city. The glory of the kingdoms. Every kingdom is recognizing mighty Babylon. Babylon rules the world at the time. The beauty of the Kaldi's excellency shall be as when God overthrew overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we've been looking at the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah on Wednesday evenings. It was complete. It shall never be inhabited. It's gone. You remember Saddam Hussein some years ago. He was determined that he was going to restore and rebuild ancient Babylon. But he didn't succeed. And God says ancient Babylon is now but a type. It is but a symbol. So when we come to Revelation and the fall of Babylon appears before us, we are talking about another world influence. An influence upon the nation's, in opposition to Christ and his word. Sometimes I do feel that the church of Jesus Christ does not take God seriously. And we don't seem to expect that God is going to punish the sinners of the world. If things keep going the way they're going, What are your children and your grandchildren going to be faced with? This is a deteriorating society, deteriorating morally and spiritually in opposition to God and his word. Now Babylon falls, no doubt about it. God is going to triumph He calls them together, all come together, but you're going to fall. And Babylon, the great falls, the great harlot system and the great secular system of Babylon all comes crashing down because Christ will have the victory in the end. But we shall leave it there presently. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy... And eternal God, we rejoice that there is a throne above every other throne. There is a king above every other king. And we rejoice that thou hast declared, though heaven and earth should pass away, the word of God shall not pass away. And however much men may hate it and oppose it and war against it, we rejoice that he who rides upon the white horse will triumph for this people in the end. And evil as then, when we look around in our world today and when we see the fearful developments in our history, may we indeed rejoice that the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, that he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven. Amongst the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Bless thy word to his pardon, and his acceptance, for the Redeemer's sake. Amen.